Scripture reading for uh, today is Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 20 through 24. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron of furnace out of Egypt to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you, and he swore that I should not cross the Jordan, and I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. For I must die in this land, I must not go over to Jordan. But you shall go over and take possession of that good land. Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he has made for you, and make a carved image to form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Good morning, everybody. Good to have our visitors, see some visitors uh, here with us today. Good to see all the Zoom folks online. Um, before I get started today, I wanted to uh, just say something uh, kind of, of a personal nature. Some of you may have seen the email that I sent out last night, um, but some of you probably haven't yet. I just wanted to say that this, this week, uh, Cherie, or I think maybe last week, she noticed that this week was going to be the 25th anniversary of of our moving up to Fuquay, and we just wanted to um, express our appreciation. A lot of you that are here in our church now weren't back then. There was, I think, four families. Uh, Kendra's here today. The Duroses were, were a part of that. The Armstrongs, Maxine. I'm going to leave somebody out, but um, Stephen, uh, Stephen Cochran's uh, mom and dad. I think Stephen was over at ECU at the time with and, and Christy. But at any rate, um, We've been through a lot as a church family, um, challenges, uh, great things. Uh, we've seen different ministries come and go, you know, in the Lord's providence. And um, we just want to, uh, wanted to express and uh, wanted you to know how, how appreciative we are for all of you. Um, the friendships we have, the, the warmth of this congregation, the, the connectedness. Um, doesn't mean we can't improve on that, but um, I think it's been pretty exemplary through the years, and uh, we're just grateful that God uh, let us be a part of it. So there's that. Okay, I want to uh, use the passage Joseph just read as a kind of jumping off point. And by the way, I saw Elvis Costello uh, in 1981 in St. Petersburg, Florida, among the best concerts I've ever seen. It was the last gig of his tour, and he, they played for like an extra hour, just covers of everybody from Mozart to Elvis Presley. It was crazy. If you don't know who Elvis Costello is, shame on you. Um, so this passage that Joseph read from Deuteronomy 4 warns the Israelites who are uh, poised to at last receive their promised land, the land of Canaan, not to confuse the true God, Yahweh, the I Am, um, with their idols, with carved images, as Deuteronomy 4 puts it, or any other kind of uh, approximation um, of God in their minds and through their own efforts. He says, you need to be aware of the difference. The real God, the God you serve, Moses says, is a consuming fire, Deuteronomy 4 says, a consuming fire. And that warning should serve as a good reminder for us as well that the God worthy of our worship uh, can never be merely the many versions of, of God that we carve out of our own human imaginations or maybe our experiences or our hopes and dreams or what have you. These are not the true God who made us in his image, but merely faux gods that we make in our image. The true God is different from all such gods. To use a Bible word, he is holy, 
he is holy. Remember, and we said this over and over, that holy in the Bible, the, the, the word, whether it's the, the Hebrew words or Greek words, whatever it is, it's not just the idea of purity. I think it's come to mean that in English. Holy means like really pure. It, that's one application. The basic idea of holiness, though, is the idea of being different, being other from what is conventional. Um, a few decades after the Deuteronomy, uh, I'm sorry, not after, but earlier, before the, the, the uh, cr passing of uh, Israel across the Jordan into Canaan, uh, when Yahweh had miraculously taken the Israelites out of Egypt and through the Red Sea, Moses wrote a song, if you remember. It's, it's, we have the lyrics of that song in Exodus 15. And there he asked this question, which captures this idea of holiness. He says, Exodus 15, 11, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? That verse, the way Moses puts that in Exodus 15, 11, illustrates both the meaning and the impact of God's holiness. The basic meaning is clear here. It means separate. Um, who is like you? He's, his, it's a rhetorical question, of course. No gods are like him. He's separate from all of them. Majestic in holiness. And the basic meaning of the word holiness is, it comes from an ancient word meaning to cut or to separate uh, to distinguish. We, we might say it's like our phrase, a cut above. It's outside the norm. And so you get that here in this verse. You also get something of the impact that God's holiness is, is to have on humans. He is majestic. There's a majesty associated with his holiness. He is, he is uh, awesome in praises because it evokes that kind of response to people who really grasp it, who are really paying attention to the nature of God. Well, if God is holy, if he is separate, if he is completely other, then doesn't that suggest that we should all take a hard and continual look at the different versions of God that we all carry around in our noggins? Because so often those are distorted. They're not the real God, they're distortions of the real God. Maybe with an element of truth, but not the whole picture. For instance, our, our notions of God can be really out of balance biblically lurching from one extreme to the other extreme. So as an example, one very common notion is the idea, and this is perhaps particularly true in, um, in you know, religiously conservative circles, in fundamentalist circles and the like. And that is the notion that God is pretty much all punitive, all wrathful judgment. He's so repulsed by sin that few can hope to meet his standard of holiness without something close to perfection. And the people who espouse this with a straight face usually are pretty convinced they're close to perfection. Otherwise, how could you live with yourself, right? They've got this idea in their head, we're pretty much doing it right. And that's why we believe this works. And if you have that view of God, if you subscribe to that conception of him, well, you typically pluck out scriptural texts that seem to support this notion of an austere, wrathful, fearful God, right? Maybe something like uh, Isaiah 59, 2. Our sins have hidden God's face from us. Or Hebrews 10, 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. You can go through the Bible and pick out those texts that seem to support this sort of one-sided God characterized by austerity and sternness and wrath. At the other extreme is what one writer calls, a guy named James Brian Smith, 
the teddy bear god, right? Teddy bear god, very popular uh, in many circles today. He's sort of everyone's cuddle buddy, very happy to overlook sins because they're really not that big a deal to God. And if you support that notion of God, you go to the Bible, if you care about the Bible, and you start plucking out verses that sound more like that, you know, where maybe Jesus in Matthew 11 says, come to me if you're weary and heavy laden. I am gentle. I'm tender and, and humble, right? I'm not harsh. I'm tender, gentle. That's the, it's the opposite meaning. And I'm lowly. I'm approachable, all right? And you'll find rest here. And so we can go pluck out verses like that if that's what we're trying to support. And each of those notions of God may be half-truths. That is, they, they're in the Bible, and there's a sense in which you can support those, but we all know what a half-truth is. If you got two half-truths, that means neither of them is the truth, right? Um, and neither of those views of God, neither of those resulting pictures of God are really worthy of our worship. It turns out that they are both very unholy. They're unholy in the sense that they're not separate. They're, they're conventional. They're worldly. They're about as old as the hills. They're what religious folks, pagan and otherwise, have always thought about God. Instead, it's the true God's holiness, his transcendence, his beyondness, his otherness, which makes him worthy of our worship. Psalm 29, 2 says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of his holiness, the King James puts it. The splendor of his holiness. Holiness, God's holiness is splendid. It is a beautiful thing to behold. It's attractive. See how holiness can't just be, a, you know, if we limit holiness to me, this pure, austere, perfect thing that cannot be approached, you're missing a lot of verses that use holiness actually the opposite way. It just means otherness, different, unique. What is that beautiful? What is so beautiful as the holiness of God? Turns out nothing is. And it's nothing we would ever create because it is separate from our experience. It is completely unconventional. And what the Bible actually says about God might surprise lots of folks on both sides of that wrath versus love divide. God is indeed holy in his righteousness, in his absolute justice. Psalm 24, uh, verses 3 and 4, uh, says as much. Who, it asks, shall ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in his holy place? Here's the answer. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So God is a God of, of absolute righteousness, right? He doesn't tolerate sin. And when he sees it, he wants to eradicate it. It fills him with wrath. So that's true. On the other hand, God is holy in his love. He's unearthly. He's beyond anything we can imagine in his level and degree and intensity of his love and affection for his people. Remember that in Leviticus 19, which is just a great seminal chapter for the rest of the Bible, God calls his people to quote, as 1 Peter will quote in 1 Peter 1, to be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. In other words, I am holy. I am set apart and different. I want you, if you're going to be my people, to emulate me in that holiness. But the rest of Leviticus 19 fleshes out what that looks like, right? 
So don't cheat people when you're, you know, weighing the grain or whatever, the money in a balance. Um, we get that one. And then it says some things that are a little maybe harder in some circles to accept. It says treat the immigrant like one of yourselves. Treat the immigrant like a citizen. Love the immigrant like God has loved you. Because guess what, Israel? You are all immigrants. And then he says, leave some of your crops for the needy. Don't follow the profit motive to the nth degree. Leave some on the, on the table. <laughs> There's needy people out there on the margins of society. And, and, and that's what he says is entailed by what Jesus will later call the greatest command. It comes from Leviticus 19 after all. Love your neighbor as yourself. Be holy, love people like nobody else does. So, God's holiness means both a level of wrath towards sin and yet a level of love towards sinner that is so intense, so perfect, that nobody would have expected it. It's holy. But it turns out that God's love for us and God's wrath for the sin or toward the sin that besets us are, are, are actually inextricable. They are two sides of the same coin, even. They travel together. You don't really have one without the other. We see them as these two you know, dichotomous things the scriptures would argue they sort of are the flip side of one another, of each other. A God who isn't angry about the destructiveness of sin and injustice, can we really call that God loving? Psalm 7, verses 10 through 12, is one of many texts in the Bible which shows God's indignation towards sin and injustice is precisely what the oppressed appeal to for deliverance. Here's an example. The psalmist says in his oppression, my shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. In other words, he knows that God in his righteousness has indignation toward oppression and injustice. That's why we can appeal to him. We can bank on the fact that he's not going to go, oh, you know what? Humans are, they're just human. People sin. People do genocide. People steal each other's spouses. They rob each other. Yeah, it's just human. He doesn't do that. And if that was the God we served, would we have any hope? So do you see how love has to have a wrathful indignation, a judging force that is going to take care of the sin which destroys God's beloved people? Wouldn't you do that for your own children? If something's endangering your children, doesn't that get you a little hot under the collar if it persists? That's love. Listen to a quote here from James Bryan Smith in a little book called The Good and Beautiful God. Here's what he says. The wrath of God is not like human wrath, which is a reckless and irrational passion. God's wrath is a mindful, objective, rational response. It is actually an act of love. God really hates the effects that sin inflicts on his children. To say that God is indifferent to child abuse or infidelity or even identity theft is ludicrous. I want no more to do with that kind of God than I do the old vengeful God who's ready to strike me for missing my devotional time. Both are wrong. God is love because God is just, or rather God is love, and because God is just, he stands mightily against sin and evil. 
God is against my sin because he is for me. And if I am for sin, God stands against those desires because they cause my destruction. So it's a pretty simple but profound idea that I think is often lost as human beings lurch from one extreme to the other in their conception of who God is. All right? Um, if it is so easy, and I think all of our experiences would, would, uh, would manifest this problem, demonstrate this problem, or maybe not your experience, but you see the other person's view of God as, as, as a manifestation of what we're talking about here. If that is so uh, easy to do, if it's so, so easy to subtly redefine God in terms of our wishes, or perhaps our traumas, that's another thing that often skews people's view of God, the trauma they've been through, or our society's norms, what our culture feeds us. If that is so easy to fall prey to, then how do we make sense, I'm sorry, how do we make sure that our, our idea of God, the notions that are traveling around in our heads and hearts are actually accurate. They're actually biblically based and not out of balance or skewed. And I wanna give you a one word, I guess it's a two word answer, and the answer is Jesus Christ. The touchstone of God's identity. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of God's nature. The exact imprint, the ESV says, of God's nature. And this comes from a Greek word, which is the idea of, 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 of engraving something. So uh, the noun form is an engraving or a stamp, something that's like you know, an emperor's image on a coin, something like that. And the purpose of it is to give the exact representation that is the emperor. You know, it's not a, 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 you know, a sort of a cartoon of the emperor or something like that. It's that that's his image. If we ever wonder whether our conception, and I think this is something we should always be wondering about, never just, you know, sort of cocksure, I got this figured out, got, got the view of God in my back pocket. We should re, re, repeatedly revisit the scriptures to test our views of God, knowing that we're, uh, you know, what's in our head is malleable and that we're fallible. And so if, if we ever are wondering whether our conception of God is, is on point, then the thing to do is to look at Jesus. One writer I've been reading the last couple of weeks says that, um, I love this, this, this uh, expression of who Jesus is. He says, Jesus is God's summary of himself. Like, all the things said about God throughout the Bible, the whole Bible is about God, he's the main character, right? When he finally wants to go, let me just net it out for you. Let me give you the gist, the nutshell. Here, here's the kernel of who God is. It is Jesus. He is the exact stamp of God's image. He's the radiance of God's glory. That's the answer. Jesus Christ. We sometimes separate Jesus from, quote, God, unquote, right? Especially the Old Testament God. We'll talk about God and say, well, is it Jesus or God? You, ever, you know how we do that? We don't necessarily say God the Father versus God the Son. We're to say there's Jesus and then there's God before we're thinking about it. Because Jesus never makes that kind of distinction. Remember in, in uh, John 8 when he's talking to that group of Jews and he brings up Abraham and he said, Abraham longed to see my day. And they say, 
you're not 50 years old. How, how do you know Abraham? Remember his answer? Before Abraham was, I am. Does he need verb conjugation classes? No, no, no. That's the point. He's, he is purposefully invoking the name of God revealed at the burning bush. I am that I am. Existence itself. Being itself. And Jesus says, I'm eternally existent because I am Yahweh. So anytime we read the word God, Elohim, Yahweh in the Old Testament, we're, Jesus is in that. John 1 said he was there doing the creating. He's the creator, right? He was with Israel in the wilderness. He was the rock that they were drinking from. All of that. Jesus is part of all that always has been prior to the incarnation. And so these separations we make between Jesus on the one hand and God on the other are, are really not very biblically based. And when it, when it comes to Jesus' response to our sin, we actually see the same dual nature in Christ that we see in God. We see love, and we see wrath. We see mercy, and we see judgment. The Gospels, of course, routinely characterize Jesus' response to sinners as, as one of compassion, of grace. Listen quickly to these texts, Matthew 9, 36. Seeing the people, Jesus felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Luke 15, 1 and 2, the, the, the sort of uh, prologue to the, the three parables of lost things, the coin, um, uh, and, and ultimately the, the prodigal. He says here, uh, the coin, the, the sheep, and the prodigal. Uh, it says that all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to Jesus to listen to him. But the Pharisees and scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. John 3, 17 the verse after John 3.16, God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He didn't come here to nuke people. We, we have this idea sometimes that God uh, or Jesus, whoever, are, are just twitching to just nuke people. That's our starting point. And it's a really skewed view of God. It's not holy. Pagan war gods were just like that. You get your act together, you appease them, you do all the right things, jump through all the right hoops, do all the right sacrifices, and they will, you know, you're good, everybody else is going to get nuked. Your enemies, the bad people. You know, all the bad people in your culture. The Bible starts with, you're a bad people. We're all bad people. God alone is good, as Jesus said. So the Gospels tell us this remarkable thing that Jesus is characterized by compassion and love and mercy. And that's maybe more well-known but do we forget that the New Testament shows the same Jesus to be capable of holy wrath and judgment, just like the Old Testament God? Matthew 12, 36, this is Jesus speaking. I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they will give an accounting for in the day of judgment. By your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. That's Jesus. That's not God speaking from Sinai, you know, before the incarnation. This is the incarnated Jesus of Nazareth. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. Jesus, John 3, 36. Now clearly, there is a tension, right? There's a clear tension. If we're going to take the whole Bible, the sum of thy word is truth. If in that spirit, we're going to take the whole Bible and let all of it inform our view of God and Christ. There's no way to put this other than to say there is some tension in the scriptures, between God's wrath and God's love. I mean, to say there's tension in scripture isn't heretical. I hope we see that. 
to not see it is to resolve the tension falsely, which is one theologian's definition of heresy. We don't like tension. We don't like cognitive dissonance. We'd like things to be simple, right? Just tell me what to do. Give me the five steps. Give me the nine things. Give me the, we want these discrete little, you know, walking takeaway points. Very American, very utilitarian. And here's the Bible saying, you know, as one medieval, I think it was medieval Jewish uh, uh, rabbi put it, the Bible is uh, something to be wrestled with, not a problem to be solved. You wrestle with it. That's what faithfulness looks like. In the name of God's people, Israel was God wrestlers. Wrestle with God. That says a lot. And we're the new Israel, you know, in many ways. We're, we're added on to Israel anyway, as I should say. You know, we're grafted on, to use Paul's metaphor in Romans 8. be a more accurate way to put that. Anyway, um, this tension, let me suggest to you, is not helped, you know, by false resolutions of the tension, by cherry-picking the verses that seem to support the God that you find more plausible. Somebody else is over here in a different faith tradition, cherry-picking different verses. They're equally biblical because it fits what they're used to or their temperament or their psychology or their past traumas or their wish dreams or what have you. That doesn't really resolve the tension. You're bo both sides are left with half the Bible that's not incorporated in their, their view, their, their theology, and I guarantee you the way they live and think. All this stuff is practical. That's the problem with abstract ideas, right? Give me concrete things. Give me concrete things. Abstractions have a nasty habit of becoming concrete like Tuesday. The, things, the way people act today is the way they were thinking yesterday, maybe an hour ago, right? The Scripture teaches us both. And, and, and this tension, let me suggest to you, is born out of God's holiness. It's the holiness of God that is, that, that is the fountain of that tension. And, and it runs throughout the pages of Scripture. And if it's ever resolved in Scripture, it is resolved on a hill outside Jerusalem known as Golgotha, around A.D. 30. It's resolved when Jesus of Nazareth, who the scriptures tell us was God in the flesh, dies on a cross, simultaneously killing sin and giving new life to the sinner. Absolutely no compromise was made with sin. God maintained his righteousness, his commitment to all that is good and just. And yet the cross accomplished this while simultaneously justifying the sinners who had, the very sinners who had violated God's justice and jeopardized, jeopardized themselves and so many others. And so to use the language of Paul in Romans 3, 26, God at the cross showed himself both just and the justifier. He's still righteous, and yet he makes righteous all of the unrighteous who would come to Christ. God is still, all these millennia after Deuteronomy 4, that consuming fire. His righteousness has not wavered. Indeed, it was most visible when Jesus of Nazareth humbly went to that cross, when he enabled us, despite our sins, to be citizens in his kingdom forever and ever, to reign with him, to inherit something so grand and beautiful as that. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 invoking Deuteronomy 4, 
that was read for us at the beginning. It says, therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. How should we respond to the holiness of God so worthy of worship because it is out of this world in its hatred of the things that hurt us? Sin, injustice, oppression, immorality. And out of this world, completely other, completely separate, completely different and unique in how much God loves the people who would hurt themselves and others over and again. The text in here, here in Hebrews 12 tells us that we should respond with gratitude. Let us show gratitude and, and worship him with reverence and awe. Thanks a lot, folks on Zoom. Thanks a lot, Lawn Church folks. Good to be with you today.